Good morning. I am not Mark Kring. My name is Michael Glenn. I'm the worship pastor here at New Hope Church. Mark Kring, our senior teaching pastor, is still on vacation. So if you came here looking for the book of Acts, you just have to come back next week. Um, but he's still gone. But he is planning on being back here next weekend to continue with our study of Acts. But this morning, we're going to spend our time in teaching, looking and talking about the church. And in, in particular, the four purposes or the four missions of the church. Now, if you take out your bulletin for me, uh, go ahead and take that out. On the front cover of your bulletin, the very front, along the left side, in the, that white little strip on the side, you will see printed there the four purposes or the four missions of the church. Learning, loving, worship, and prayer. And we're going to be focusing this morning on how those four missions, how those four purposes uh, is very much actually a biblical pattern of life in Christ or an experience in God. As a matter of reference, though, I want you to know first right off the bat, I would encourage you, go ahead and write this down if you want, that Pastor Mark, the last time Pastor Mark himself spoke on these four topics was September 21st, 2014. That was last year. You're probably two or three clicks away on our website from accessing that. And Mark draws out learning, loving, worship, prayer out of Acts 2. But this morning, we're going to take a different a different approach to learning, loving, worship, prayer, but I wanted to make sure you knew if you wanted to go back and see how Mark looks at these, you can do that. All right, let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for bringing us here together, and and all of us here, myself included, we all sit under the authority of what you say, the authority of your word. So, uh, Lord, we ask that we would receive your truth and Uh, based upon who you are and the authority you have and not me. We also pray, Lord, that our minds would be open and our hearts would be soft to receive what your words have in store for us because they do not fail. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and all God's people said, amen. So the church, the first thing we need to do is look at what the word church, where that comes from. So when you're in your New Testament and you're reading through your Bible and you see the word church, Let's look at the word that's translated into that word for a little more meaning here, all right? The word, and the Greek word, is ecclesia, an assembly or religious congregation. The word translated church in the English Bible is ecclesia. This word is the Greek words kaleo, which means to call, with the prefix ek, out. Thus, the word means the called out ones. The church is the called out ones. It's a term that identifies a group, recognizes the individual, but emphasizes the work of Christ. Called out ones, identifies a group, recognizes the individual, and emphasizes the work of Christ. So I've called my message the church and I because that slightly different approach I'm talking about is I want us to look at these four purposes from a very personal point of view. I want to answer this question. What do the purposes of the church have to do with me? With me. So we're going to draw out learning, loving, worship, prayer, and we're going to make it personal. Because if the church is the called out ones, then I think we have every right to look at the church from one's perspective. So how did this all get started? How did the church get started? Well, there's a passage in the Bible I'm going to take you to, 
And this passage was a passage written to leaders of churches, okay? So, but in this instruction to church leaders, the author of this part of the Bible references how the Bible, I mean, how the church got its start. Where does this all come from? You ready? Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. The church was bought. Bought with the very life of the Son of God. It was bought with his blood. This reference to the purchase of the church by the blood is to a reference to what we call the gospel or the good news of Jesus. So let's take a minute and talk about the gospel. We'll start at Romans 5, chapter 8. But God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Everything that needs to be done for you to enjoy an eternity with God in heaven has already been done for you. Save one thing. You responding to the call. Responding to the call of repentance. And now what is repentance? Basically, it's this. You giving up your life in exchange for the eternal and the immeasurably valuable life of Christ. Jesus died so God could punish every wicked thought, every wicked word, and every wicked action. And in punishing wickedness in Jesus, our wickedness in Jesus, God's justice is satisfied. It's satisfied to all who respond to the call. Let me put it this way. Nobody's perfect, right? We've all heard that said a hundred times. Everybody agrees with that. If nobody's perfect, that means everybody will have to give an answer to God for what they have done. Everybody. But if you receive Jesus, if you respond to the call, your answer to what you have done will be Jesus. He'll be your answer. What he has done, his righteousness, his goodness, his holiness will be credited to you. And then you will get to enter and enjoy and worship and live in the light of your eternal king forever and ever. So the ones who respond and receive Jesus are his church. The ones who respond to Jesus are his church. And he calls you as you are at times just like now through people just like me. Respond to the call that Jesus would leave heaven, empty himself, be killed by the hands and the hatred of the very people that he came to save? When you ever hear somebody say, the love of God in Christ Jesus, sometimes we say it like it's on the side of a mug or something, right? But that's what we're talking about. Jesus coming, dying for us, so that we can receive him, receive the call of repentance, and be assured of eternal life. So without Jesus dying, and without Jesus rising, there is no call and there is no church. Without Jesus dying, without Jesus' resurrection, there is no call and there is no church. So everything we're about to talk about here, and I think some of this, all of this is quite awesome, it was bought and paid for at an incomprehensible cost. That is the cost of the life of the Son of God. That's an amazing love, isn't it? 
Christ loves his church. He loves his church. In the Bible, uh, the church is called the bride of Christ. So in understanding what the bride of Christ is, we're going to look at a, a passage of Scripture that's actually written to real husbands, guys like me, okay? And so we have this passage of Scripture that's written to husbands, but in it, the author explains a whole lot about how Christ looks and, and what he does with his church, okay? So here we go, Ephesians 5, um, verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives. Now, interestingly enough, that's it. The rest of this verse is actually an explanation of how Jesus and his church relate to one another. Now, every time I've heard this passage taught correctly, of course, is that's how it's received. But what I want us to do right now is I want us to sweep aside all the husband-wife stuff that we're familiar with, and we're just going to focus in on what we learn about the bride of Christ in the rest of this passage, okay? So here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We just talked about that. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So Jesus' desire for us is that he would sanctify us. And the definition of that churchy word is right in the, the following words and next phrase. The definition of, of sanctific, sanctification is cleansing. So as we talk about the mission and the purposes of the church, remember, learning, loving, worship, prayer. So as we talk about these things, we need to remember, number one, Christ bought the church with his blood. And number two, what he has in mind for us. And it's these four things. Christ has in store for us, it's awesome. Sanctification? Oh, he didn't put his awesome up there. It's okay. He probably thought, I actually had this awesome up there, but we took it out because we're responsible. Sanctification, cleansing with water, sorry, cleansing with the word to present us in splendor. Splendor does not sound boring, does it? And to make us holy. And Jesus promised to build his church, Matthew 16. And I tell you, says Jesus, I tell you, I will build my church. Here we are. 2,000 years later, 2,000 years later, the words of Jesus do not go undone. Amen? All right, so here we go. Are you ready for some uh, truth in his word? You ready for some cleansing with the word? All right. I'll give you your five spot later. <laughs> our main scripture for today is going to be the Great Commission. Now, all you got to know about the Great Commission for our purposes is this. Jesus has lived. He's been crucified. He's resurrected from the dead. And he's called his disciples out to him to meet him at a place where he is going to physically leave them. He's going to ascend into heaven. And he gives them final instructions. So when you hear Great Commission, just remember, it's something of a final instructions for his disciples. It reads like this. Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
So if Jesus isn't God, he's either wicked or certifiably insane. Because look at that first statement. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. If you go around telling enough people that, they are going to put you away. All right? I'm just warning you. But it's true. He said it. So all we're going to do with that statement is just say amen together. So all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Christ. Amen. Go therefore. In other words, because Jesus has all of this authority, because he has it, he's sending us. What is he sending us to do? To make disciples. If you have to give a two-word answer to what the church needs to be doing to obey Christ, it is to make disciples of all people groups. Next, we have the commandment to baptize. If you are a follower of Christ and you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to look into it. And right now, some of you might be thinking, we're going to be out of here in 90 seconds, (laughs) right? No, we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 20. We're going to be drawing out, learning, loving, worship, prayer, from verse 20 of the Great Commission. So let's get started. And the very first word, there you have it. Very first word of verse 20 is teaching. The first purpose and mission of the church is to teach, is to teach. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. The truth is taught, it's learned, It's held up, it's supported, it's not decided upon, and it's not the agreement of a group of people, all right? So I'm going to step away from my uh, Bible notes there and got to get something off my chest, okay? So the Bible cannot be something we decide upon. So it's like this, oh, you decide that this is the truth. You're calling it the truth, okay? You're saying this is the truth, okay? But those two things aren't the same thing. So in other words, it can't be the truth. It takes away from the very definition of the word. Or if you get a group of people together and they all agree, that's the truth. That doesn't necessarily make it the truth. So here's what I want to do. Here's my challenge. Can we come up with a new word that these people can use when they do this stuff to truth? It's like all the brainiacs out there trying to make truth into something democratic, okay? So we can keep truth in the church, and then we can give them our new word, all right? So I challenge you, come up with a new word. I'll do my best to make sure everybody knows about it, all right? All right, here's our, here are two things God says about the truth. Two things God says about the truth. The first is from Psalm 119, and it, in this passage, you have the psalmist speaking to God. The sum of your word, O Lord, is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Jesus himself says it this way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I love Jesus' style. I just love Jesus' style. Because if you were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what is truth? His answer would be, I am. I am the truth. All right, now when I started uh, meeting with Pastor Mark and, and the early part of the church, and it became apparent to me that part of, a big part of my life was going to be helping lead all of us in worship, I made an effort to just clean the slate of my understanding of worship. I just wanted to kind of erase everything that had gotten in there and return to the Bible with some good teaching and just start again in understanding what the Bible has to convey to me about worship in an effort to help us all do it the right way. The foundational principle 
that the starting point of that effort, the very foundation is this, okay? God initiates, God establishes, and God governs relationship with his people. God initiates, God establishes, and God governs relationship with his people. Now, we established earlier that we don't get to decide the truth. It can't work that way. Otherwise, it's not the truth. So here's an implication of that. Hi, God. I'm going to get to you the way I'd like to. God says, uh, no, you're not. You're going to approach me the way I tell you. Uh-uh, uh-uh. I like doing things like I do to feel spiritual and have my experiences. So I'm going to, no, no, no. Let me tell you, let me reveal to you how you need to approach me, all right? And this means, very important part of this, a relationship with God is not self-made. A relationship with God is not self-made. So the way that we are spiritual or how we experience God cannot be based on what we think it should be. It can't be based on what we think it should be. It needs to be based upon what God says it should be. Can you see how this is such an important thing to realize when you're planning and leading worship? Because if you're not careful, worship will just become what you want it to be. Oh, this feels good. I like that song. Would you hold my hand? Right? So in the same way, we need to move forward um, looking to God reveal his truth to us. Now, straight up, straight up, I think the notion of a self-made relationship with God is ridiculous. And I don't even need a Bible to make my point, okay? I want you to think of one single relationship that you have with one other real person. Has to be a real person now. One relationship with one other real person where you and you alone get to decide everything about how that relationship works. If you're honest with yourself, the answer is there isn't one. So what makes us think that we can do that with God? If there was ever a relationship that might be a bit one-sided, might it be our relationship with God? This is the reason teaching leads for the church. All of what I just communicated was to make that point. Teaching needs to lead. Teaching is the lead-off batter for the church. Because this is important. If we go wrong with the truth... If we go wrong in the teaching of the truth, if we go wrong here, we're going to go wrong everywhere. We need to learn how to love. We need to learn how to worship. And we need to learn how to pray God's way. God's way. All right. But our bulletin doesn't say teaching loving worship prayer, does it? doesn't say teaching loving worship prayer. It says learning. So in order to get some insight on why it's learning and not teaching, we need to go a few more words into our Great Commission scripture verse for the day here. So teaching them, Jesus is um, commanding the church to teach them, the disciples, to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching serves a purpose. I'm going to say that again. Teaching serves a purpose. The church does not teach for teaching's sake, okay? And in order for us to grasp what Jesus is saying here about teaching them to observe, we need to look at this word observe a little bit. And uh, 
You may have grown up reading the scripture verse, if, like I did, in a translation that read, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And that might actually help you understand it a little more, but observe is actually a better word. And I want to help us understand why. This word observe is this definition. It means to guard. It means to protect. It means to preserve. So to preserve or to guard or protect. Now, I really wrestle understanding what, how that means, what that means in that scripture verse, but I think I can help us out, okay? So first, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. So when you think of observing God, the commandments of Christ, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean observe as in I observe a full moon, like I see it, okay? We don't see the commandments of Christ, we don't observe them by just seeing them, all right? It doesn't mean also, and this is the scarier one, it doesn't mean to observe in the sense of gaining understanding, all right? Some of us run businesses. Maybe you have managers, and your sales is going down, and you're observing conflict. You're observing dysfunction in your management system that's causing things to go wrong in your company. That's not what this means either. It doesn't mean to observe in that fashion. This is what it means to observe the commandments of Christ the best that I know how to communicate it. You ready? It's how you observe Christmas. It's how you observe Christmas. Well, how do you observe Christmas? I can tell you what I do. I put like 4,000 lights on my house. All right? I got this tree outside of my house, and we, we took all the lights down this year and counted them up. I mean, it was over 2,000 lights. We get a tree. We sing songs. We gather together. We make presents. We decorate the whole house. We have church services in here on Christmas Eve, whether we have power or not. This, and, and what are we doing? We're preserving Christmas. We're protecting it by doing it. We're preserving the preciousness, the glory, the beauty, the majesty of Christmas by continuing to do things for the event. And this is how we observe the commandments of Christ. It's kind of convicting, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we could just see the commandments? Hold back, hold back. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be the first among you must be your slave. Back away from the commandment, everyone. Safety first. No, there's no safety first in God's economy. That's not how it works. And this is the primary reason your bulletin does not say teaching, but it says learning. There is a trend in our culture, I think, and I know I am susceptible to fall into this as well, but there is a cultural trend that we have where we make this connection between the acquiring of information and the completion of the learning process. So I get the digits, I get the concepts into my brain, and once they're there, I'm done. I've learned it. But the idea of learning hasn't always meant that. It's all... Let's just do this. We're going to go back to the time of Christ. Let's examine what it would have meant for a disciple to learn, okay? So I think this, this quote uh, speaks it very well. So here's a Bible scholar, Ray Vanderland, and he's a, he's a Bible scholar and a historical scholar, and he dr- draws attention to this point by looking at the difference between a student, kind of a surfacey level of learning, and a disciple, which is what we're interested in because this is what Christ has commanded us to do, okay? This is what uh, 
he has to say. A student wants to know what the teacher knows for the grade. To complete the class or the degree or even out of respect for the teacher. A disciple wants to be like the teacher. As the rabbi lived and taught his understanding of the scriptures, his disciples listened and watched and imitated so as to become like him. I want to make one illustration on this point, and then we're going to move on. So I spent a a large part of my childhood growing up on a lake, getting dragged behind boats with water sports. I love water sports. I still do. And one of my favorite water sports is barefooting. Now, if you want to know what barefooting is, I'm I'm going to assume that you know what water skiing is. So just imagine water skiing, but with no skis. So in other words, the boat has to go fast enough to support all of your weight on your feet. All right? Think skipping a rock, but instead of a rock, you have a person with poor judgment. Okay? Now, so I love to barefoot, and let's say me and you right now, we hop in my car, and we drive all the way out to my parents' cottage, and I bring you out, and we sit you down on the front table of our front porch and overlooking the lake, and me and you go at it one-on-one, and I tell you everything you need to know to barefoot. I tell you how to hold the handle. I'll tell you where to look. I tell you how I'm going to drive the boat. I tell you what you need to wear. And if I'm a friend, I might even tell you how much it's going to hurt the first time you fall. Okay? And we, we get it now. We're on the same page. I get it. You understand it. It's all in there. Then you pack up your stuff and you drive back. You're hanging out with your friends that day. Would you tell them that you learned to barefoot? I don't think you would. Under what circumstances do you learn to barefoot? If you do it and do it successfully, all right? This is how we should be learning. We have learned God's commandments when we observe them, when we practice them, and I'm going to add, when we dare them. So what are the commandments of Christ? Well, they're not boring, are they? Jesus summed up his commandments in a single word. Do you know what that word is? We need to look at the second word on the list of our four purposes. Jesus summed up his commandments in loving. Loving. The commandments of Jesus Christ are summed up in loving. In the New Testament, which is the part of the Bible that deals with Jesus and all he taught, there are 16 different places in the New Testament in six different books where the idea of the commands of Christ and the love of God are connected 16 times. Are you obeying the commands of Christ? Then you're loving God. Interesting in loving God? Obey the commands of Christ. Jesus himself put it this way. We are to love God and love people. We are to love God and love people. Look at the way Jesus said it. Matthew 22. And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Another Bible passage goes a little further. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, 
I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, do you think he's gone far enough making his point? But have not love, I gain nothing. Charles Swindoll explains it this way. We can reduce these thoughts in 1 Corinthians to one simple formula. Anything minus love equals nothing. Love is the only attribute that truly distinguishes us as followers of Jesus Christ. So learning serves a purpose. That's what Jesus said. We are to learn to love, to love God and to love people. Now, if you hang out church long enough, you're going to have this experience. We do what we call a short-term mission trip, for example. We get a bunch of money together, and we head off to a faraway place, a place where there's poverty, a place where there's sickness, a place where there's injustice. And we go out there, we send these groups out there, and they go, and then they come back. And it's in the conversations I have after they return that I enjoy. Because I've had this conversation quite a few times. It goes something like this. Michael, you wouldn't even believe it. You wouldn't even believe it. Like the power of God was, was everywhere. I mean, it just, it was palatable. It was dripping. The Holy Spirit was so at work. I mean, I honestly think I saw a miracle. I've had people recount to me bona fide miracles being on mission trips like this, okay? And I love watching somebody be on fire for God and what he's doing, but if the, if, the, if the situation is appropriate, I usually respond this way. Okay, the power of God, check. What were you doing there? Oh, well, we were taking care of widows. We were feeding hungry people. We were putting clothes on people that didn't have enough. Uh, we were standing up for people who couldn't stand up for themselves. And I say lovingly, what did you expect was going to happen? What did you expect was going to happen? When, church, when we lean into the word of God, we will see the power of God. And my favorite part when people come back from these mission trips is this. They come to, to a worship service, and I love that. Our missionaries come back, and you know what? They usually sit a little closer. No offense to everybody sitting in the back. Is that what I mean? They usually sit a little closer. They sing a little louder. They shoot their hands up a little easier. And on their face, on their face is an authentic glow of gratitude, of humility, and of sheer joy of having witnessed firsthand the power of God. And do you know what they do? It's the third word in your bulletin. They worship. The third mission and purpose of the church is they worship. Look, Remember a barefooting, barefooting analogy there we had when you came up with me and I taught you everything you needed to know about barefooting, but you didn't go on the water? Do you know what you miss when you don't go out on the water? Do you know what you miss if you don't go on the water? The thrill of it. The thrill of it. It's the same way with God. If you're understanding God, okay, but you're not abiding in him, you're not leaning into him, you're not trusting him, you're not just pouring into him, you're going to miss the thrill of him. If you're understanding God, but you are not leaning into him, abiding in him, pursuing him, you're going to miss the thrill of him. And I fear, 
There's too many of us missing the thrill of life with God. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is Jesus describing our mission trips 2,000 years before they happen. So living your faith, living it into the promises and into the power of God puts you in the front row of the greatest demonstration of power the world has ever and can ever know, the power of God working through you. These words of God, these promises of God do not fail. Love never fails. Love never fails. So I have to do this now. Love your wives. Respect your husbands. Honor your parents. Do not worry about what you're going to wear. Be born again. Abide in Christ. Seek first his kingdom. And the world will see and give glory to God. And for those who would respond to the call, will even worship him. They'll worship him. So if this all sounds like crazy talk to you, I'm glad you're here. Maybe you don't feel you've had an experience or what we would call a revelation of Jesus Christ that would make you want to say these kinds of things. I am glad you're here. So if you don't mind, I'd like to take a few minutes and just tell you a little bit about Jesus, a little bit about this guy. Jesus, well, he performed his first miracle Stating at the time, by the way, that he wasn't planning on performing his first miracle. He performed his first miracle to simply help out a friend keep a party going. He spoke the kindest words to the most despised people. He put people's lives back together that had been hopelessly broken. Kids loved him, but the power-hungry and the self-righteous hated him. He absolutely confounded the most brilliant minds of his time. And he was yet 35. He wasn't yet 35 years old. He preached and traveled and ministered with such energy and passion that he once slept through a raging storm on a lake in an open bowed boat. And when he woke up, he commanded the storm to stop and it did. He fed hungry people so much food, there were baskets and baskets left over. He once stood in front of an angry crowd of his enemies, an angry crowd of his enemies, and asked if anyone could accuse him of a single sin. And no one could. He made and kept friends with prostitutes and criminals and hypocrites and cowards. And for all this, we killed him. But it was all part of the plan. He's not dead anymore. Now, he hangs out in hospitals. He stands with the lowest and the least, and he sits in firm authority over the greatest 
and the strongest. He seeks out and saves people. He breathes life into people, brings people back from the dead. I think we fail to see Christ at work in the world, not because he isn't working anywhere, but because he is working and he is at work everywhere. Jesus said, I'll build my church. He said, everyone's going to hear this gospel of mine. That means if there are people out there that haven't heard or received the love of God, Jesus is at work right now making sure that it gets done. Breathing life. I have a grandfather who's a bona fide World War II hero. And I regret that I did not have the maturity to spend more time with him and talking with him and listening to him. All my grandparents, for that matter, they were all wonderful people, and all of them are now gone. But that's okay. Because there is coming a day when I will have all the time in the world to catch up. Who does that? Who has the power to do that? You know who did that for me? Jesus did that for me. You know who has the authority and the power? Jesus does. And now, he rides on a horse and he carries a sword, okay? And all the nations of the world could gather all their power put all the little laws and silly courts together and they can all form, come in formation against him, one guy, and he laughs. And he laughs, okay? He rides on the wings of the wind. He walks in the recesses of the deep. His name is tattooed on his thigh. Who does that? I love that. It's my name right there. Love that. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There is no equal. He has no equal. And I'm going to take this one step further. Jesus is never made a fool. Jesus is never made a fool. Look, being made a fool is a matter of perspective. That's a matter of perspective. I would be very nervous about being part of any effort to make Jesus out to be a fool. That is not going to end well. Jesus is not made a fool. This is Jesus. This is my Jesus. And if you have responded to the call, this is your Jesus. For all he has done, for all that he is, for all that we will see and become, we need to worship him. Moving on. We are to teach the disciples to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold. Now, does that word behold seem a little out of place to you? It does for me. And this is what it means. Jesus is saying, put your seatbelt on. What I'm about to say, when properly understood, is going to blow your mind. I am with you. I am with you. Jesus is with you. And there is a word we use to describe spending time with Jesus Christ. Does anybody want to take a stab at what it is? Prayer, learning, loving, worship, and prayer. God is truly with us. We talk about this a lot at Christmas time, but consider for a moment that this is the very last thing that Jesus says to his followers before he physically ascends. He's going to build his church through these people. The very last thing he wants us to know in me, I am with you. 
Now, worship and prayer are related. They are. And I want to point something out, something that popped out of a passage of Scripture that I'd honestly never noticed before, okay? So I'm going to take you back to the Bible, and we're going to go look at a, a time in Jesus' ministry where Jesus' disciples asked him, teach us how to pray. Lord, teach us how to pray. And he responded. And so he responded in part by saying this from Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Okay, stop right there. If you're sitting on the mountain in front of Jesus in that moment, what do you think he's about to tell you? Now, we have the luxury of skipping and reading through these verses really fast, but what popped out at me this week was simply what I might be expecting Jesus to say next. Now, if I'm sitting in front of Jesus and he has said that, I am expecting him to tell me how to ask God for what I need. I mean, maybe you don't see it that way, but look, do not be like them, for your Father knows that what you need before you ask him. So I'm sitting there looking up at Jesus like, okay, Tell me how to pray for my needs. And this is how Jesus continues. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Five lines of worship before give us this day our daily bread. Anybody can pray. And God hears every word. God listens to your every word. And life is tough. Life is tough. Nobody, look, take comfort in this. No single human being has ever gone through life and not received their fair share of scars. So pray. Pray. Are you suffering? Pray. Do you have a song of joy? Then sing praises. What does prayer do? What does prayer do? Well, If life is a battle, and the Bible says it is, let's look at it this way. Um, Prayer changes things. Prayer changes things. Now, worship in this battle is both a victory song and a certain victory. I have to say certain victory because it's important to remember that the praises of God are undefeated. They have an undefeated record. They're like a gazillion and all. All right? That's worship. But prayer can change things in the battle. You might be outnumbered, running out of ammunition, outflanked, outgunned. And prayer may be the very thing that unleashes God's power into your situation for your survival and maybe even your victory. You might have something broken in your life that you're currently thinking about right now and that it might be, in your mind, unfixable or unchangeable. And, you know, I have sat where you sat and listened to people like me say things like this. And there have been times in my life when somebody says something like that, that something pops right in my head. Some of you are facing challenges, addictions, broken relationships. And I'm here to tell you that prayer changes things. If your view of prayer is maybe a bit too quaint, I'm about, I would like to toss you a grenade if you don't mind. So I have said prayer changes things and I want to prove that to you by a story in the Bible. Don't listen to me if it's just me saying it. So we're going to go back and we're going to look at Scripture again. But it's a story. And in order for us to draw out this meaning in the story, all you got to know about is the two characters in the story, okay? The first character is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is the king of Israel. And the second char- character is Isaiah. And Isaiah is a prophet. 
Now, in this context, prophet means simply one who speaks for God. Hezekiah, the king of Israel. Isaiah, God's prophet. Let's look at the story. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the Lord speaking now, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Bummer. The Lord has spoken. Really. It's time to gather your family and say your goodbyes. But that's, that's heartbreaking. Look at how uh, Hezekiah responds. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in right and faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I don't think Hezekiah is praying because he thinks anything is going to change. Hezekiah was a good king. I think Hezekiah is breaking, I'm sorry, is praying because his heart just broke. His heart just broke. Now, I have not received that kind of news that Hezekiah got, but I've received some pretty life-changing news in a moment. And I know some of you have too. What do we do? Well, Hezekiah prayed. And he cried. Look at these words uh, from Jim Cimbala. He's a uh, pastor in New York, and he has taught me a whole bunch about prayer. Sometimes weeping is the best kind of praying because tears are a language God understands. Now, I told you, if we fully understood what Jesus meant by being with us, it would blow our minds, right? All right, well, here we're going to finish the story, and here we go. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, before he had even left, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, the Lord is speaking again. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. If prayer can change the mind of God, prayer can change anything. If prayer can change the mind of God, prayer can change anything. Now, this is important. I have to put this in here. What God does with our prayers is up to him. It's not up to us. We cannot, we do not use God for our purposes. That's important to remember. God is not a concierge or a gopher. But the fact remains Prayer changes things. Now, I know there might be some confusion on this point. I do. Look, I just said that God changes his mind. And I know some of you, questions are bubbling up in your head, and that's good. There's a lot more to learn and discuss about this idea, and we're not going to do that right now. But here's the thing. Sometimes I think we skip over a more profound truth in an effort to get to the last one. I have no problem saying that God changes his mind because we all just saw him do it. Prayer changes things. No one can under explain that. If somebody ever taps you on the shoulder and says, I have a thorough explanation, bulletproof explanation on how God can change his mind, don't listen to them because 
they don't know, all right? But the fact remains, prayer changes things. Learning, loving, worship, prayer. Learn the truth of God. We're going to observe his commandment to love. God on display in and through us, the world will see and give him glory and we will worship. And we are not alone. We spend time with God in prayer and prayer changes things. God calls us and God has made a way for us out of sin and death and into life. Learning, loving, worship, prayer is what we are called to do because praise be to God because of what he has done, because of the call he makes, we have been made the called out ones. The called out ones. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we, we thank and praise you. We, we look at you with affection and with praise, and we thank you for the work that you have done among us, that we have sat in front of your word, we have received your truth. And Lord God, my prayer is that for this church, for these people, that we would have the courage to uphold the truth, to follow you, to obey you, to abide in you, that we would speak your truth and your praises and your love into the darkness, and that you would turn on the lights. We thank you that we have been called. Now lead us and guide us and strengthen us to complete this work that you have set before us. Jesus, we look to you and we look forward to seeing you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, church.